Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Now, you may notice as you listen to me introduce the show right now that uh, the tagline is a little bit different. And I, you know, we saw all the different folks who were tweeting at us and, you know, in all sorts of other places speculating about whether or not we were going to change the name of the show. Because as you know, Majority 54 was a title for the show that originally came out of the fact that 54% of Americans uh, voted for somebody not named Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And we're not going to change the name of the show because it's still about the majority and like, I don't want to change the name of the show. I like the name of the show. I've got a Royals jersey that says Majority 54 on the back. So this stuff is set in stone and it ain't going to change. But more importantly, I'm excited about moving this show forward without a Trump presidency because what it does is it removes constraints and it allows us to focus more on what's going to matter long term, which is how people can convince the conservative voters or the you know conservative-leaning independent voters in their lives to come over to our side. And it continues to emphasize what we've wanted to emphasize from the beginning, which is that those of us who want progress are the majority in this country. And that's been true for years, even during the Trump presidency. I mean, that's why we called it Majority 54. Those of us who want progress are the majority in this country. But if we want to be able to govern this country effectively and actually make change, we have to focus on expanding that majority. And we believe that the best way to do that is a consistent, uninterrupted effort, whether it's during campaign season or not, for all of us to be ambassadors to the people in our lives who don't yet agree with us. So I actually think this show is even more relevant than it's ever been, and we're really excited to move forward with it. Um, now, we have a guest this week, uh, and it's our friend Adrian Fontes. Adrian is the uh, recorder in Maricopa County. You have been hearing all about Maricopa County uh, in the last few weeks because that's as they say, the election that as goes Maricopa County, so goes Arizona. And so it was all over cable news, you know, uh, John King and Steve Kornacki just constantly updating you on what's going on in Maricopa County. As the recorder, Adrian is in charge of the election. So he's the perfect guy to talk to this week. Also, we're recording this on Veterans Day, and Adrian is a Marine and uh, and an all-around great guy. He's on the advisory board of Let America Vote. He's a really good friend of mine. Uh, Ravi, I know, has worked with him as well, uh, and so we're really happy to have him. I think he is just finishing chewing on his breakfast burrito, and as a result, I think I'm ready to say, Adrian, how you doing? Thanks for being here. I'm great. The coffee's delicious and uh, doing this outside in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona could not be better on a brisk, uh, brisk November morning. How are you doing, Jason? I am fantastic. All right, Ravi, with that, what's going on this week? Well, obviously, huge news this week. Uh, we have not done a pod since the race was officially called for Joe Biden. Uh, all major networks on Saturday declared 
uh, Joe Biden, uh, the president-elect. Uh, and right now where things stand is that Trump is badly trailing Biden, who leads by nearly 5 million votes. And Biden has cemented uh, 279 electoral votes, which is nine more than needs to win. And he leads in Arizona and Georgia, which would bring him to 306 electoral votes. All the legal paths uh, Trump has, which we'll talk about later to try to block this thing, are very, very, very unlikely to succeed. And so Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States. And I just want to start with a where were you and what? how did you feel when you found out this news? And, and I'll get us started. I was on an airplane for a long planned trip, which I'll talk about later in the pod, um, out of the country. And I was taking a nap and I just woke up and I was like, you know, I have one movie on my laptop, uh, A Few Good Men. And so I just like popped open the laptop and I was going to watch A Few Good Men. But I was like, you know what, let me just check my email really quickly. And just an explosion of, of messages. And just basically five minutes before that, Biden was declared the winner. And literally everybody around me was like sleeping or reading a book or whatever. I just went through a period of time just figuring out how to tell people around me uh, the news. And I settled on just telling anybody who is awake. Uh, and people were pretty excited. It was really it was really nice to be able to tell people in the air. Jason, where were you? Uh, I was at home uh, with Diana and True. And, uh, you know, True was right on the same page with me. He felt for days, he was like, Biden's won this thing. So he, so he was less, <laughs> he was excited, but less affected. Diana had been sort of skeptical and, and I wouldn't say skeptical, had been anxious like the rest of America for days. And so she started crying. I got a little emotional, but mostly uh, it was just sort of uh, a quiet thing. It was just a nice sort of peaceful moment. Adrian? Yeah, I was uh, counting ballots, uh, making sure that democracy <laughs> was uh, pure and clean and true. And uh, no, you know, I, I honestly, I don't remember exactly where I was, because as you know, I was uh, not only running the second largest voting jurisdiction in the country uh, and making sure that we did it with integrity um, and with honor, but uh, I was uh, running my own reelection campaign at the same time and sort of nail biting on my own race, which uh, is still very, very close, but it is where it is. It was um, very interesting for me because I had, I, I really believed, particularly on the political side, because I separate really hard the political side and the job side. I believed that Arizona was going to go for now president-elect uh, Joe Biden. Uh, you could feel it. But it was it, it's turning out to be a hell of a lot closer than I thought it was going to be. And I think that's very, very interesting as well. Where exactly was I? Uh, probably sitting in front of my laptop uh, emailing somebody about something they needed to be doing. <laughs> well, uh, since we have you here, before we move on to some darker topics, Adrian, uh, what's been happening in Arizona over the past few years? Uh, why is the state trending uh, blue? Uh, and, you know, we were looking and for certain we can say that we've won, we flipped two Senate seats uh, over the past two cycles, and we may very well grab the electoral votes as well. Uh, what's happening? How, mu how much of it is people moving to the state? How much of it is certain subpopulations changing their minds, like suburban voters and uh, uh, LDS, et cetera, and how much of it's just a Trump effect? Well, I think a lot of it is a Trump effect. Uh, much of it has to do with Martha McSally being an absolutely horrific candidate in the first place. I think she's the only person in the history of the republic to lose in back-to-back -back general elections two separate Senate seats to the opposing party. So if you appreciate that, send her a fruit basket. Without ever, having, without ever having won one in the first place, by the way, which is right, pretty impressive. Right. She, she, yeah. never, she never actually won one, but she lost two. So 
that's an offer of gargantuan proportions when you think about it. But I think the Trump effect is really, really important. When you look to what's happened, let's just look at election night, you know, at the local level, right? We had uh, looked like we were taking the state house, looked like we were taking the state senate in Maricopa County. It looked like we had all the countywides and possibly even maybe three of the five uh, Board of Supervisor seats where the Republicans had a 4-1 majority. And what has ended up happening as the rest of the votes have come in and been counted is we've seen that get whittled away bit by bit by bit by bit across the board. So what really I think is happening is that Republicans who still have the majority of registered voters and independents who generally lean towards where they live, uh, which is with mostly Republicans in Maricopa County and in Arizona, they decided to vote no on Donald Trump by not a wide margin, but then they decided to stick with their party going further down the ballot. And so where in a lot of places you saw a lot of blue and at the very top, you see a flip in, in, in those two Senate seats over the last two cycles, the guts of what's happening in Arizona uh, means that the Democrats really have to pay close attention to what just happened. We just got our asses handed to us on the local level and at the state house and the state Senate. So there's not a lot of jubilation here at the local level, although we did, you know, help help Biden over the hump. And of course, Mark Kelly did very well becoming the second Democratic U.S. senator in Arizona in the last couple of cycles. So a uh, lot of mixed emotions here. Lots of Republicans moving here from California where folks were complaining, all oh, these Californians coming over. It's like, yeah, they were Republicans and they were the kind of Republicans who would not vote for Donald Trump, but who did end up voting uh, for their party down ballot, and uh, I think that's a very important factor here in Arizona, uh, and we're going to have to we're going to have to work hard to figure out what to do with that. Well, before we start talking about the the Biden transition, uh, given the the thrust of this podcast, I think it's a good time to stop and and give a little bit of guidance to our listeners who are struggling now with how to restart conversations with people in their lives who have different political beliefs in them, and so. Given that you both have a lot of experience uh, politicking with people who um, aren't traditional Democratic voters, uh, and you know, I imagine both of you have a ton of people in your lives who uh, voted for Trump, what should be the conversation and the strategy now for people who feel a little bit disaffected from their family members who voted differently, and what, if anything, should people be doing in the, in the weeks and months ahead? Adrian, I'll let you uh, jump in on this because, I mean, our listeners have heard me talk about it a lot. So go ahead. Well, look, I mean, from my perspective, it's just it's it's the same thing that we that I've always done. And it's lead by example. Uh, you know, not all of the numbers in, but it doesn't look very good for my own reelection. Uh, it's very, very tight, given the number of votes that have been cast. I think, you know, we're going to be close to two million ballots cast in my race. And there's uh, just over 3000 votes separating the two of us. Uh, and, and should it come out the way that I, I anticipate it will, which is unfortunate for me and my folks, I'm going to make that phone call. I'm going to make the gracious concession, and I'm going to bring my um, former opponent and soon-to-be successor into the office. I'm going to give him a tour. I'm going to treat him with the deference and respect that he deserves because he won the political contest, and that's how Americans do it. And that example of this Democrat showing that Republican the grace of office that it deserved on any American politician, any American leader, is going to be the example that I'll be able to have conversations with people about for a long time coming. And not only that, but it'll be a real-time example about actual leadership. This is just one piece of a much greater conversation. 
Uh, but we've been having this conversation with Republicans here for the last four years. That's why we were able to improve the system the way we did, because it was a solid conversation about, look, when we benefit voters, we're benefiting your voters, too. When we make it easier to vote, we're making it easier for your voters to vote. When we're sharing information, we're sharing information with all voters. And so when you find that common ground and you're advancing basic common interests, basic American interests, basic values, you can make progress and you can build connections. But it is, it, we got to be able to lead, we got to be able to govern, and we got to be able to talk to people about what values we hold in common, because they are far more numerous than those things that keep us apart. And that's one of the ways that you have those conversations. One, one question for you, Adrian, before we move off of this subject, because it is fairly breaking news that uh, you potentially could be handing over your office to uh, a, a Republican in a, in a really important seat uh, for voting access in, uh, as you say, the second largest voting jurisdiction in the country. What evidence based on the race and your opponent, um, and this gets to the heart of the question about like how much deference and grace we show to people from the other side, especially when they have power, um, what sense do you have that your opponent would expand voting access, restrict voting access, and uh, both from, from his character and from the proposals he put out there? I think the worry from our listeners is that we unilaterally disarm and we're the ones showing grace while they're the ones poking us in the eyes. What and, sense and, do you and, have? And, yeah, yeah, and, and I'll tell you, I'm one of the first Democrats in the world to say that we are way too soft. We are way too non-assertive and we're way too non-aggressive when it comes to really advocating for our positions. Uh, I think that we give too much all the time in just about every argument to be kind. But this is not an argument. Transitioning power from one politician to the next politician is not an argument. That's not a policy issue. That is a core fundamental precept of a democratic society. And so where I am extending grace to the same guy who attacked my character, who made all kinds of false allegations against me, who came after basically my family and my core, who claimed illegality and all this other kinds of nonsense without any evidence. The transition of power is where I extend grace. I don't have to forgive the guy for the way he campaigned, and people can judge the way he campaigned as they will, right? So I'll put that point aside. Transitioning power requires this to happen. The really important thing is, as you indicated, what guarantees do we have that he's not going to do the things that he talked about, right? That he's not going to disassemble the community relations team that reached into traditionally underserved communities. That he's not going to disassemble the really broad publication of a lot of information that we have, reaching out into communities to bring them into the election process instead of sitting back and waiting for folks to come knocking on the door and then holding it tight so that they don't get that kind of access, right? These very different attitudes. There is no guarantee uh, that the next administration is gonna be as welcoming to voters and as open to improving the voter experience. That's why we have to remain vigilant. This is a constant fight in America. It is the epitome of America. All we've ever done is expand voting access and expand voting rights to lots and lots of groups, while this other group over here tries to narrow and constrict those, that access and those rights. This is a continuation of that same American narrative. Ravi, it's a really interesting question because we have this sort of tension that exists constantly within the left, right? Which, which is this, uh, how tough do we be? And do we have to engage in the same kind of tactics as them? But then again, at the same time, like somebody has to be the adults, right? And, and this is the first time we've been confronted with it during a transition. I mean, and, and everybody is rightfully very alarmed. 
And it is something we have to sort through now, right? Because at the end of the day, like, yeah, we can't just be pushed around. But also, at some point, somebody has to be the adults or the country doesn't work. And I think this is what we keep seeing on stuff like uh, COVID relief, right? Where people are like, hey, maybe they should just play the hardball politics, not give Trump anything. You know, this was in the run up to the election. Don't give him any, don't even bother to do a deal with him. And then it is the Democrats who I think rightfully say, yeah, that would probably be the better political move, but we're going to go ahead and save people's lives. Or if you go back to bailing out Bush at the end of, of 08 and bailing out the economy and going along with, uh, with the bailouts, when maybe it wasn't the best uh, politics for us, but it was the right thing for the country. I, I understand why people are consistently irritated that we have to be the adults and therefore uh, we don't just leave the other side hanging politically uh, very often. But at the end of the day, like we're all in this in order to help people. And, and that's just really what it comes down to. Right. I mean, but it is a tension. Well, obviously what's hanging over this entire conversation is, is not just the county recorder seat in, uh, in Maricopa County, but the presidency of the United States where we have a president who refuses to concede the election and uh, members of his cabinet uh, have been backing him up. Uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo said there will be a smooth transition to a second Donald Trump term. Uh, and then there's other alarming things happening within his administration, like uh, wait, Pompeo said Pompeo said there oh, was yeah. going to be a smooth transition to a second yeah. term yesterday. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now wow. he could have been joking. He's a dry guy, but he never clarified. He's been given an opportunity to clarify it, and he has not. Which is yeah. And like, if he were joking, and, and if I were joking, and I made that joke, and people took it seriously, I would immediately be like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> I was kidding. I'm really sorry. So, yeah, especially when you represent the United States of America, this seeming. Uh, representation of the values of democracy and freedom abroad, and you're pressuring foreign governments to, uh, you know, it's supposed to be pressuring foreign governments to reform uh, and become more democratic and more open and more free. Uh, I think it's not the kind of thing you joke about. It, and let's just focus on the president for a second and Biden, uh, who has to run a transition in a short period of time. Biden did not mince words, and he, he called uh, Trump's actions since the election day an embarrassment. Uh, he said, uh, Biden said, quote, how can I say this tactfully? Uh, it will not help the president's legacy. So Biden's, you know, not mincing words, but still a little bit restrained. He then offered words saying that we're going to we're going to have a smooth transition, whether they give us what we need or not. I am going to be the nervous Nelly here because uh, I, Jason, I saw some of, some of what you said, and I would love to have you just like kind of repeat it for us. Uh, some of the stuff you said on Instagram, but I'll just start by saying I think we'll, we're going to, I'm not worried in the short term about getting uh, Biden elected. I'm worried in the medium and long term about just what this does to our democracy uh, when you have President of the United States acting the way he is and, and a party closing ranks behind him. And I would say I'm, I'm more anxious today than I was the day after the election last week, uh, just in seeing how the Republicans and have closed ranks behind him and what his actions are. But Jason, give, it, give us a little bit of hope here. Well, I want to, but I actually agree with the way you put it, which is that it does worry me uh, long term for democracy. It's it's like on the way out the door, Trump is just trying to kick holes in all the walls. And, you know, it's, it's like he's just how much damage can I do as they drag me out of here? And so on the bright side, he's going to get dragged out of there pretty soon. Um, but it is really upsetting because it's just yet another ridiculous and harmful precedent. Uh, what I was trying to uh, urge everybody to think about on Instagram was 
and I talk about this a lot, we have to focus on what we can control. We're not in the Trump administration. We can't force a transition. We're not in a position where we sit on a court that can force a transition. So what can we do? Uh, we can focus on what it is that's motivating them to do this. They don't have any reasonable expectation or, or any even fantastical expectation of hanging on to power. That's not what's really going on. So in that way, I want to put everybody at ease. They're not hanging on to power. They're, they're gone on January 20th. But what they are trying to do is revise history as it's happening and make it so that we all look back on the 2020 election and think that it was super close and that it might have been fraudulent. And if they can get enough Americans to think that, then they can delegitimize the election and therefore undermine the Biden-Harris administration. And as a result, that makes it a lot easier for them to stand in the way of cabinet appointments, of judicial appointments, of legis you know, with a, with a Senate that's either going to be ours or extremely close, there's going to be legislation that comes out of the House that would be signed by the president, that there are enough Republicans to support it, and they will need some sort of political justification for refusing to hold a vote on things like common sense gun reforms or, you know, democracy reforms, or, you know, health care reforms, whole whole list of things. And they just want to prep the battlefield for being able to do that. And and at the same time, they need to gin up their base because a January election of two Senate seats in Georgia is just basically another special election. And in special elections, it is mostly not about persuading persuadable voters. It is actually about, you know, making sure that the that your base is ginned up more than the other base. And uh, and so that's what they're doing. And that's why what I was urging people to do is not get distracted by that right now and focus on Georgia and focus on trying to win these two Senate seats. Yeah, I think the 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 main point, and, and, and Jason, you said it very well, is, you know, control what you can control. Work on what you can work on. The Trump administration, and, and look, I've been as apolitical as possible for the last four years, but the gloves are off, the handcuffs are off now, uh, particularly since I may not be uh, in this office for a while. So I'll just flat out say it. The vast majority of what the Trump administration has done for the last four years is deflect and distract from the underlying damage that they've been doing to the traditional institutions of government uh, that we expect in this liberal democracy. Right now, he is doing exactly what Jason said, kicking holes in the wall on the way out the door. And let's not forget, particularly since we're filming this or recording this on Veterans Day, what's happening at the Department of Defense is very troubling. It's very troubling. And what has happened because of all of these temporary appointments across institutions really is a destabilization of all of the institutions across the government. And I think that has to do with the fact that the, the, the president really has just wanted to deflect and distract and have everything concentrated on just him. It is the authoritarian's playbook, and they're going to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. I have faith, like Jason, that this is not going to work, that we will have a transition of power, regardless of how rough it ends up being for the Biden-Harris administration, because I, I have faith that that'll happen well, because uh, we are still Americans, right? Because we still have this idea in our head that we're not going to just end up with a tyrant who comes in and, and does what he needs to do to preserve selfishly power. That being said, what can we do? is focus on what we can control ourselves. Work on Georgia, work on local election reforms, work on you know, the things that are important to you, particularly in those places. And we talked about it a little bit earlier, right? Talk to the folks who you think you can't talk to. Find that common ground. This is up to us. 
Ravi, before we move on, one thing I want to underline or, or sort of elaborate on that, that Adrian mentioned is, because I think people have been hearing a lot in the news about what's going on at the Pentagon, but they may not have a real sense for what it is. I, I want to explain it real quick, which is that this is something that uh, happens a lot at the state level when there's a transition in power from one party to the other in a gubernatorial race. So w governors do this a lot at the state level where there are positions that are not political appointments. And as a result, uh, it takes a lot of due process to remove somebody from those positions. They're more like civil service positions. And so uh, a lot of the time at the state level, when one party is moving out of power, uh, a governor will take some of their like most loyal people who want to stay in government. Sometimes it's just because they have like two years left on their retirement or whatever, and they'll appoint them to one of these positions that still has a lot of power and responsibility, but is not a political appointment. And so it's therefore very difficult to remove them from. It's extremely rare that it happens at the federal level, um, but that's what the Trump administration is doing, and they're doing it at the Pentagon. And I just this morning got a series of really pretty panicked text messages from a buddy I served with in Afghanistan who's now, uh, he's still an active duty uh, officer in the military, and he's relatively high up at the Pentagon, and he's telling me that there is an absolute panic going on there because they see these ridiculous ideological partisans being put into positions of immense responsibility at the Pentagon, uh, that they are uh, going to have a really hard time, that the Biden administration will have a really hard time replacing them. And it is gross and also really oddly hypocritical and ironic because what we're talking about is a group of people who made up the idea of the deep state now at the end of their administration actually trying to create some semblance of one. And, and so that's what's happening. And one added wrinkle here for listeners, if you're not following this closely, is that the person in charge of policy at the Pentagon is somebody who called uh, President Obama a terrorist. So uh, the person who's supposed to actually be going after the terrorists called the President of, uh, of the United States uh, a terrorist. Uh, and remember what we're comparing this to. Obama appointed Chuck Hagel and Gates as the Secretary of Defense, you know, two, uh, you know, one who is a Republican senator and one who is a previously appointed uh, Secretary of Defense from a Republican administration. And I think we got to continue to be the patriotic party, the, the party that's in de defending our institutions, not because it's good politics, although I think it should be, but because it's if, if we don't do it, nobody will. And I think for listeners who are looking for a way to cope with this mentally, you have to think about it almost like a hero's journey. Not that you're the hero and your relatives are the bad guys, but that like Trump and Trumpism, that's the bad guy, right? And that Life would be boring if we lived in this Pleasantville or, or, or Truman Show where everything just went well all the time. That just wouldn't be an exciting existence. Now, there are certain versions of exciting that I would prefer to the one we have right now. But right now, we're in a world where we're blessed with absolutely capable evil villains. And that makes life, uh, to a certain extent, have bigger ups and downs. Uh, and that means that when you're motivating yourself, you matter more than you ever did. You matter more than people who are our age and in our democracy in the 90s did, or the 80s did, or even the 70s. Uh, we live at a period of time when we're needed to defend this democracy, and that can excite you. You could both be fearful about the future, but you could also be excited about your role in it. And so when I think about all the things that you guys are talking about, that's not how I've been just framing it in my mind to keep myself motivated to continue on with this fight. All right, I am traveling right now. I'm down in Costa Rica and I packed just one little duffel bag, but rest assured, uh, I put athletic greens in that bag and I've been taking it every morning. Uh, yesterday, I was just mixing it early in the morning before I went out uh, for a surf. 
And um, a few of my buddies over here where I'm staying were like, what is that stuff? And I was like, oh, it's Athletic Greens. And they're like, you know, I keep hearing about this. Is it worth it? And I just went and I had like a speech that was like Michael Douglas's speech in American President. I was just so passionate about Athletic Greens. And they're like, whoa. Uh, and the reason why I love Athletic Greens and I've been using it way before we ever had this podcast and why I bring it with me on the road is because it is an all-in-one nutritional solution. And it's a multivitamin that goes the extra mile. It's comprised of 75 minerals, vitamins, and whole food ingredients. And it is a powder made without any harmful chemicals or GMOs. So it is that nutritional insurance that you can bring with you wherever you go, no matter what is going on in your life. Uh, and right now, Athletic Greens is giving our audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free liquid vitamin D supplement with your first purchase for additional immune support. So if you're looking to upgrade your multivitamin or take one nutritional formula that's going to help cover your daily nutritional bases, then you want to consider Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens makes getting as much high quality nutrition as possible incredibly easy without the need to buy multiple products. Make an investment in your health today and try the ultimate all-in-one wellness bundle and support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com majority and you'll receive up to a year's supply of liquid vitamin D for free with your first purchase. That's athleticgreens.com majority. Post-election, one thing is for certain, we need to take care of ourselves first so that we can take better care of the people around us. That's why Bluebird Botanicals CBD is the perfect solution for whatever comes next. Bluebird Botanicals is a B Corp certified CBD company and was one of the first CBD companies in the U.S. They've been formulating and blending the highest quality CBD products since before CBD was cool. When it comes to CBD, quality and transparency is key. Bluebird was the first CBD company to extensively test their products with a third party and post those results on their site. 100% accessible to every consumer. It'll tell you everything that's in your bottle of CBD, confirming potency, but also confirming that there aren't dangerous levels of heavy metals, pesticides, fungicides, or other chemicals, resulting in a product that works. In honor of our veterans, during the month of November, Bluebird is offering Majority 54 a special promotion. When you use the code MAJORITY at checkout, you'll save 30% off your order of CBD tinctures, soft gels, or their amazing new CBD gummies. But Bluebird Botanicals is also going to be donating a dollar from every order to Veterans Community Project. For those of you who don't know, I'm the president of Veterans Community Project, and our mission is to eradicate homelessness among veterans and serve all veterans and make sure none of them ever fall through the cracks of the system. So I really appreciate Bluebird doing this, and I hope you'll take advantage of it. Visit bluebirdbotanicals.com and enter the code MAJORITY at checkout. That's 30% off your order plus a dollar donated to Veterans Community Project. This week's Midlife Crisis Corner is brought to us by our friends at Athletic Greens. Jason, what do you have for us? Uh, so, Ravi, you have in the past given me the very solid advice of not playing basketball at our age. <laughs> and, uh, but I really, really like playing basketball, and I abide by that advice nearly all the time. Uh, but yesterday, uh, I did play basketball with uh, three friends. We played two and two, and uh, and it was really fun. And uh, we wore masks, which made it a lot harder. And then I woke up this morning, and my back is killing me from jumping up awkwardly and coming down. So I'm going to go another six months abiding by that advice. Uh, but I'm sure 
that the athletic greens that I drank this morning will power my recovery uh, yeah. in, a, in a real catalyst sort of way. Uh, Adrian, what about, what about you? Well, just before you move on, just so listeners know, like the heart of this advice is I have a friend who's an ER doctor and she said to me that you wouldn't believe like the percentage of people who come to the doors that are either people around uh, our age playing basketball or people around our age driving motorcycles. Uh, and so this is truly a midlife crisis point that you're making. Uh, and we, that's why people take up golf. That's right. Which I have, you know, reluctantly found I could enjoy much more this this past summer. So when it warms up again, less basketball. Uh, Adrian, you have shrunk substantially in your stature in the last year. I've enjoyed watching it. I assume that's what what you're gonna tell us about. Are it. you flirt? Are you flirting with me, Jason? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. We're, we're encouraging you, you up, Adrian. We're no, bucking I, you up I, after I, this. I this appreciate cycle. that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, I have in the last year and a half or so, I've, I've lost uh, almost 100 pounds and come down from my from my 330 down to a little under 230. And I've always wanted to try this this athletic greens that you guys are talking about because I hear amazing things about it. But for the midlife crisis thing for me is because I'm an old Marine, I don't experience pain. I experience <laughs> weakness leaving my body and it's welcome <laughs> so you know for me it's a couple of ibuprofens and and maybe a nap uh for 20 minutes in the afternoon so i don't you know and you guys are complaining about playing basketball at your age i'm 50 i'm a good chunk older than the two of you so i don't know what you guys are complaining about there's no midlife crisis here gentlemen semper fi <laughs> oh my god that was the speech i needed that was the speech I needed. all right ravi tell tell us tell everybody where you are right now so I'm in Costa Rica right now on a, a long planned post-election trip. Uh, that's where I was flying to uh, right after, right as uh, the election was called for Biden. And I'm at this place called Surf Simply, which is a high-tech surf camp. And this place is the most amazing place I've ever been to in my life. So basically, it's a place where uh, it's run by a bunch of amazing surfers, uh, mostly from the UK, but a few from the States, who have broken surfing down to every discrete skill possible and every mindset possible and kind of take you through the whole journey. Listeners probably know I was a school principal. I spent a lot of time thinking about how to teach people things. These people understand teaching better than anybody I've ever met, like short loop feedback cycles using multiple methods like video and on the spot coaching, et cetera. And they're just awesome. Here's the case for surfing. You can't take your cell phone in the water. And that is a beautiful thing because then you just get to think about things and clear your mind. Uh, and so my phone usage has gone way down this week. And I know that's been a goal of yours too, Jason. Yeah. Uh, and if you could find a, a hobby where you cannot use your phone, that's a hobby worth checking out, in my opinion. I, I mean, in reality, that hobby out is not even a hobby. It's I really just shouldn't use my phone while parenting. I mean, so it's, it's, right, <laughs> it's right there in front of me. I've just got to embrace it better, as my son will tell you. I'm going to send you a Faraday bag, Jason, so that you can just like stick your phone in the bag and it doesn't ring. It doesn't get a signal. Nothing happens while you and True go do your, your, your dad's son stuff and you guys have your fun That's with your whole idea. family. That's yeah. a good idea. I yeah. appreciate it. In this week in misinformation, uh, we're going to talk about what you probably expect, uh, which is this whole story around Biden, quote unquote, stealing the election that uh, the Trump administration is trying to push. I think listeners are familiar by now uh, with this set of arguments. We're not going to go into the ins and outs of what the claims are and why they're false. Uh, obviously, listeners, you can find this information easily online. But what I wanted to do, given that fact that we have 
two people who've been very much involved in the administration of elections in our country and voting uh, to just talk about from your perspective how people can simply describe to the people in their lives how absurd uh, these challenges are and how absurd the idea that the election is being stolen is. So what I think is really great about this pairing right here is that, you know, I've been an election administrator from the statewide level as secretary of state, uh, but, you know, Adrian's done it at the level where the counting actually happens, where the real on the ground administration of elections happens and where, if there were any, uh, fraud would have to occur. And so, uh, Adrian, what I think would make the most sense is for people who are struggling to articulate something that doesn't exist, right? There's, that's the big frustration, I think, for a lot of listeners is that they have people bring something up like fraud that to borrow an, uh, several years ago, but very apt term from Stephen Colbert has a truthiness to it. Like it, it meaning it's not true, but it just feels like it could be true, right? That, you know, because people think, well, I mean, there's so many votes. There must be some fraud, right? And we know that there really isn't. But can you walk people through how the process works so that they can understand and explain to others why it is the case that fraud is virtually non-existent? Yeah, and, and you know, we could sit and go through all the details. It would take too long, but let me just kind of boil it down to this. The real question about fraud comes down to ballot handling, right? Who is handling those ballots? And, and, and when you print and mail out, for example, like we did 2.1 million ballots by mail, right? The post office is tracking those from the point of departure at the warehouse. So they're tracking those. They've got the smart bar track. They know exactly where those are till they hit the, the mailbox. And then we know where they are the minute they come back to us, whether they got dropped off at one of our vote centers, whether they were mailed back and put back into the postal system. When they get open, they're open by a bipartisan board. You cannot be on the other side of a table with two Democrats or two Republicans when you're opening up those ballots. Once those happen, then they go to the ballot tabulation center, and that is all sealed within the same space. And so, and again, this all happens under 24-7 cameras. In fact, when the folks were coming out to protest at Maricopa County, we set up those fences to give them plenty of space, close enough that they could yell at us and we could hear them, right? God bless the First Amendment. But I took the vote here placards, you know, those signs with the arrow, and I put the QR codes for the cameras inside the building onto those, and I set them up around the protesters. So they could actually be outside protesting and watching on their phone the live counting that's happening inside. Transparency is really an integral part of election administration. And I think most election administrators do everything as much out in the open as possible, but folks don't go find that information. It's hard to find, we don't push it out enough. All along the way, on top of all of this, you've got political observers who are literally lawyers hired by the different political parties who are right on top of all the people doing this work. So the fact that people are complaining that there's all this fraud out there means that they don't understand the system which is a complicated system that is completely open, completely accountable, and completely transparent. And I would say, no matter what stages of the process other jurisdictions use, almost all of them, as far as I can tell, all of them that I've got any experience with, have the same sort of accountability built in. And so from my perspective, it's a question of, look, if you think that there's some shenanigans, go ask your own party if they made appointments. Go ask your own political side if they had hired lawyers and hired observers, making sure that the process was good. We have 
hundreds of millions of votes over decades and decades and decades, billions of votes if you count them all, and the number of actual cases of fraud that exist are de minimis at best. The real question is this, trying to figure out why people are motivated to push these false narratives and then attacking that. That's really helpful. And what I would, what I would add to it is, is that when people bring this up, don't just defend the system. You got to go on offense. You got to point out that, look, actually, the administration of elections is one of the things that is done in America that is something that is actually done so well that it doesn't feel anything like what is happening in the rest of government in such a polarized time. Because you, as you pointed out, you have an even number of representatives of each you know, political party of, of each representation of a different position. And so it's unlike anything else going on in government, which is why it is so fair, which is why it is so transparent. And when I say go on offense, I mean, I would, I say to people, look, not only is this system fantastic, this is how we ought to seek to run every other damn thing. If you're in a conversation like this, stay on offense and say, look, the fraud that exists is that People want you to believe this so that they can put things in place to rig this system. They want the system to be such that it is harder for certain people to vote. They don't like it that it's so transparent and fair. And that's why they say this crap to you. The, the biggest, the biggest, the, yeah, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest motive for misinformation and disinformation is exactly what Jason just said. It is to instill quote unquote safeguards against voter fraud that doesn't exist. Those safeguards are actually modes of voter suppression. But making it harder to vote requires a motive. You've got to have some kind of a reason to sell people on this idea that it should be harder to vote. And so you create this boogeyman of voter fraud, which is false, and then that allows you the space to make it harder for people to vote. I'm, I'm worried about you know, what's going to happen in Arizona, frankly. I'm worried about what's going to happen in a lot of these states where things are very close. If you've got Republican majorities in the legislatures and, and, and in governorships, where they're going to be able to say, they're setting up the stage right now, right? They're setting up the stage with all of this nonsense, with all of these just crazy, crazy allegations, because it was so much easier this time around for people to vote. We pulled off the biggest election in the history of this country during a global pandemic, a hell of a lot of people voted successfully, had their votes counted. It was almost a flawless election. If you look at all of the actual problems, there were very few. And now they need a reason to push back against the ease of voting, to push back against absentee balloting, to push back against efficient systems. They're setting themselves up to create more, quote unquote, legitimate voter fraud prevention techniques, which are actually voter suppression techniques. That's the problem that we're facing right now. Well, it is time to grab an oar. I'll, I'll start it off and kick it to you guys. Uh, give to our two Senate campaigns in Georgia if you have the means. Uh, and early money really matters in these races because this is not a long race. Uh, so if, the, if you have the ability to give, give. Uh, if you have the ability to give time, either through phone banking, et cetera, please do that. Or uh, I, I know that they're actually going to be likely doing in-person organizing down there. And so uh, for those of you who are in Georgia or have relatives there, it's not a bad time to go down south uh, if you're up north and, and catch some of that good weather and turn out some voters uh, for the future of our democracy. 
Yeah, I'll add to that that I will be over the next few days posting, I'll put it on Twitter, uh, a link that people can donate to that will split the money three ways between Ossoff, Warnock, and Fair Fight Action, which is Stacey Abrams' organizing uh, group down there. And I'll just say, you know, I think a, a small effort ought to be put in by every single one of our listeners to pay attention to who it is that actually runs your local elections, figure out those systems and be smarter on that, because that's going to be where the critical fight continues to be moving forward across the republic. All right, folks, uh, before we go, just a reminder um, that we will get back probably next week to using your voicemails again. Uh, so please feel free to leave us some. Let us know specifically what it is you're hearing out there that you would like help countering uh, or any questions that you have. The number is 508-687-2589. That's 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Adrian is at Adrian underscore Fontes on Twitter and at adrian.fontes on Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Adrian, thanks for doing this today, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Happy to do and it, thanks buddy. for everything you've been doing uh, yeah. to, to keep our democracy rolling. Yep. Happy Veterans Day, and thanks for your service, man. Thank you. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music's provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.